My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I am joined by Patrick Denis. He is a professor of political science at Notre Dame and the author of the um, almost cult status books in, in my circle, Why, Why Liberalism Failed. Uh, welcome, Patrick. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm really glad to have you on because um, liberalism, the faults of liberalism, the future of liberalism uh, have been a big point of discussion, a big point of contention in, in kind of my circles and in general, I think, in, in kind of the, the dissident right, even, even on the center, um, there's been a lot of talk about um, classical liberalism. A lot of people have, have um, adopted the mantle of classical liberalism kind of as a counterpoint to, to woke ideology. Um, but for a lot of people, um, myself included, uh, you kind of reach a point where you know you start okay th this is what we're going to say we are we're classical liberals but when you look at kind of what the diagnosis of the situation is um it's it's not a very satisfying um description of uh, of of why we got to this point so um i really found the the book why liberalism failed like a a very good counterpoint to to the mainstream narrative that you know we're not we're just not doing liberalism well enough we're not applying it well we're not doing it hard enough you know we're, we're letting uh the virus of illiberalism slip in and um i feel like uh, a, a lot of the criticism that has come up is is just that okay did something happen in the 1960s uh you know the virus of postmodernism um, do you feel that that critique has some weight? Because I feel that's kind of the, the biggest counterpoint at the moment to the woke movement that, um, you know, there, there was a cabal of French people, you know, postmodernists that, uh, that just kind of set, set this, uh, this proper train in, in motion um, and, uh, and derailed the, the good, healthy train of liberalism. Yeah, you know, we've been hearing this uh, sort of refrain for several centuries in a way. Uh, it's just which, what's the date when we locate the, the catastrophe? Uh, so yes, I mean, I think you hear widely that um, sort of all was well, more or less until the 1960s, the late 60s. Uh, but if you sort of travel in the more academic circles, you kind of hear, well, no, everything was fine um, until the turn of the 20th century. Uh, with uh, the inauguration of the progressive movement. And that was really where the virus began. And the 1960s was just the realization uh, and culmination of that movement. But then you can go further back and say, really, it was, it was all good until the French Revolution or, you know, keep going back and you can find the moment where things went awry. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think what, what we're witnessing is, um, I, I think the phrase of art today is accelerationism, uh, trends or tendencies that already exists broadly within, I think this, this big thing called modernity of which liberalism is its political expression, its political instantiation. 
uh, and the we can point to different you know different moments in recent or even earlier history where you can see a kind of watershed moment. In other words, you have you know a, a period of sort of gradual change suddenly punctured and punctuated by a period of real acceleration of change. And that it's, you know, it's, it's not unusual that you would see this kind of dynamic occurring and kind of, it's almost like you could compare it in geologic terms to, to an earthquake. You know, there's, there's, there's uh, foreshocks, there's uh, sort of harbingers of, of what's to come, but then the kind of pent up energy that gets built up in the, um, uh, in, in the fault line really just uh, suddenly just emerges. And then afterwards you have all the aftershocks. And I, so I think the sixties were one of those earthquakes. And I think the progressive era was one of those earthquakes. But I think what we need to see is that, that there's a, there's a deeper geology here. And that's really, you know, in part the argument of my book. And I think a lot of other people are discerning that uh, these are really not, you know, the, the moments where this phenomenon of sort of accelerationist liberalism uh, comes from it's just emanations or expressions of a deeper underlying geologic fault. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I uh, one of the one of the uh, analysts that I, I trust in this area is, is Jeff Schollenberger, and he um, he has this uh, metaphor of kind of an, an autoimmune disorder because we keep hearing about the the virus of postmodernism. Uh, you know, it's some some form of infection that that kind of just takes over. I feel like this 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 metaphor is, is kind of apt. It's just the it's the, the logical conclusion of a system that kind of is attacking itself. Yeah, and you know, I think um, yeah, this this uh, this uh, yeah, the age of virus is is particularly apt. Um, you know, there was a disease uh, in the 19th century. Of course, it's still around in some places, um, tuberculosis, but which was called consumption, uh, and to, in popular terms. And I think that's again, if we're going to use these kinds of metaphors, this isn't a bad metaphor to understand what this unfolding process in political terms of liberalism is. It's a kind of project that consumes itself. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and what it consumes are the, above all what it consumes are the preconditions that make, or at least for a period of time, led people to conclude that liberalism could be a, not just a, a successful kind of successor politics to everything that had preceded it. And even lead some analysts to say that liberalism was the was the answer to the ancient question of what what's the best regime i mean you had obviously famously francis fukuyama make the argument that uh liberalism and he called it the end of history but really what the claim was was that liberalism was finally the answer to what had heretofore been the unanswered question of what is the best regime for human beings uh but really what i think uh what in many ways people saw as the success of liberalism was its capacity in some ways to benefit from many of the things that we would acknowledge or things that we, we appreciate. Um, you know, I'm sitting in a warm house in Northwest Indiana right now. I have good dentistry and so forth. Uh, but that the preconditions that made liberalism successful were, were by and large pre-liberal. They were by and large inheritances of a pre-liberal tradition. I mean, the most obvious example to me since I live it every day is the modern university. Uh, modern, modern university and its architecture and the titles of things like professors and deans and provosts, it's all medieval. It's all medieval in its sort of formal aspect. 
the way the form of inquiry even at a university like Notre Dame the emphasis upon theology and philosophy as the as the core disciplines but what we see is that the modern university is really a kind of palimpsest to use the the, the, the ancient term for an old kind of writing that was scraped off uh, and a new writing was was put on top of it and that new writing is really is literally before our eyes consuming the university it's consuming this kind of ancient um, organization of human beings to discern and understand the nature of the created order of the universe hence the name university the universe and really what it has become is, uh, is a kind of, um, you know, on the one hand, postmodernist trends, a denial that there is a truth. So there's really a denial that we can achieve any kind of knowledge outside of maybe certain kinds of scientific knowledge. But what that means is that we're left essentially with a kind of Nietzschean project. There's no truth. There's only perspective. There's only points of view. So in the end, all there is is power. All there really is is power. And that, that, that pursuit of power is expressed on the scientific side of the university as the effort to control and master the natural world. And that power is expressed now increasingly in the humanities and the social sciences in this kind of woke ideology. Uh, it's simply going to be the raw assertion of those who, who deem that they should be in positions of power over those uh, who they deem uh, should not be in positions of power. So this project of, of liberating us from all things <laughs> of the past arbitrary relationships uh, tradition and so forth has really now proceeded in a kind of self-consuming uh, uh, kind of trajectory. Mm. Yes, that's. Uh, I feel like the the university is probably kind of the the, the most visible example, but it, it is something that's that's been happening slowly throughout society. Um, and it's interesting to me that that the big divide between kind of the the libertarian wing of liberalism and the the kind of the social liberal kind of the American liberalism um, is is you know one thinks the the state is to blame and one thinks that uh, you know the, the state is the cure and that capitalism is to blame. But but there is this kind of this dimension of scale that that kind of comes in here, uh, and it seems to me that that at this point, uh, the state and and big business, especially global business, are not that distinct. There there are many they're they're overlapping in many of their functions. Uh, one of the big functions is to support people that are atomized. Uh, that are kind of ripped ripped from their from their roots that that kind of have to exist in this suspended state and the state does that through welfare programs and the market does that through through products and then catering to all sorts of created needs and and uh, all sorts of uh, yeah all sorts of new new ways to to satisfy and and create uh, new needs um, so, so I'm curious if, if there's there's something to be said about scale in this context, because when when you know things were still local, they were still happening at the at the ground level in communities. Um, these types of phenomena, these types of leviathan entities, they just could not exist. Um, and is is there a way to to scale this back? Is there a way to scale back the market without empowering the state? Is there a way to to scale back the state without empowering the market? Uh, they feel like two two poles of the same type of force at the moment. So you said we might be here for an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, and that would be the rest of our time if we really, <laughs> if we really spent our time on this subject. Uh, obviously, it's, it's a, in many ways, it's the, it's, it's the dominant political question and challenge of, of our time and of recent times. 
Uh, and I think you're absolutely right that um, in the first instance, of course, one key aspect of this of this phenomenon of modernity is about the centralization, the centralization of power. Um, you know, the book, if your readers are interested, I'm sorry, your listeners are are interested. Um, uh, the book, I think, uh, to be read is uh, Bertrand de Juvenel's uh, book uh, on power, Des Pouvoirs, uh, a figure I think is much neglected in sort of these circles that we travel in, uh, but a really um, one, of, one of the preeminent political philosophers of the 20th century, uh, and I think very much an heir of the, of the kind of thought of someone like Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, who, who wrote a number of books, but his book of power uh, was a, was a really a great analysis, a, a really perceptive analysis of the ways in which um, the there kind of there was a kind of we were hoodwinked. There was a kind of deception that occurred uh, in the early modern period, and the deception was the following: the thinkers, the architects of liberalism, made the argument that in order to correct what was the overarching power of what was a overbearing monarchy the medieval monarchy. There needed to be the introduction of limited power of the, of the form of modern liberalism. So when we, when we, one of the ways that we speak of modern liberalism is that it introduces and instantiates an ideal of limited government. What, what uh, Juvenel points out in, at length in this book and really, uh, and uh, uh, I think analyzes with, with deep perceptiveness is that in fact, what, 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 what was actually happening was you had the, the effort to destroy the decentralized and diffused form of power that really defined the Middle Ages, you know, especially through the kind of dispersion of powers, not only through the various kinds of aristocratic orders, uh, the different, different loci of power. Maybe you travel through Europe, you're part of Europe today, and you see all those dispersed loci of power in the various, you know, literally the various castles and the various um, fortresses that you know, would have been uh, where uh, lower level lords and so forth uh, would have would have governed most directly. Uh, but uh, but the effort was really to generate a kind of movement that combined the discontents of the populace with the the desire of the of the monarchy to centralize power uh, and to and to basically to sort of crowd out and ultimately destroy this kind of intermediate level uh, of, uh, of a kind of feudal order. And then liberalism came in and said, what we need now to do is limit this power. And in order to do this, we need basically to displace any remnant of the medieval order uh, and establish what was called a limited government. But that limited government, of course, was really based on the idea that there was only a single center of sovereignty. And the limited government was claimed to be that it that the liberal order could could not um, could not govern in the name of any specific end or goal of politics, and that in that sense it was limited. But in the purpose or pursuit of liberating human beings, of liberating human beings from any particular circumstance, arbitrary relationship, uh, the place where they might have happened to have been born, you actually need extensive and potentially unlimited power. And the more you dig down into the very core of the things that tend to define us, things like family or religion in particular, then you need really substantial power to liberate people from those forms of identity. And I think that's where we're seeing liberalism consuming itself most, most specifically today. 
So on the one hand, you could say liberalism broadly, the powers of liberalism centralize, fragment, or liberate people, but results in a kind of fragmentation, or as you put it rightly, atomizes us. And then those very powers that are needed to achieve that gain further power by becoming the sole source of assistance and benefit from, uh, from the fragmented and atomized populace. And I think you're right that today what we see is that this, this has always been a kind of joint effort of both the state and the market, uh, that the market, the modern market, the modern liberal market sought in some ways to atomize, to regard us and treat us and to regard ourselves as sovereign choosing individuals. And similarly, the state would assume more and more power from those mediating intermediary institutions uh, as a way initially of liberating us, but ultimately increasingly of becoming the, what Tocqueville described as the tutelary state. So I think the dynamic is really very clear. It becomes clear to us when we begin to see it in that historical context. And to get to the, to the nub of your question, uh, is, the, is the answer to this, does it, does it have something to do with scale? And in particular, uh, the, a kind of revitalization of the, of the local level. And, and I, I think you know, at, at some level it does, although um, it strikes me that those who are, in, in some ways, those who most, most benefit from a more local existence are often those who are the, the elite of our society, the liberals of our society enjoy most the kind of neighborhoods and local farmers markets and sense uh, that they actually, you know, mixed use walkable neighborhoods. Those are almost entirely the monop monopolized in the possession of a kind of elite that doesn't necessarily need those arrangements in order to have thriving lives. It's just that to have those arrangements is what leads to thriving lives. The people who know most need those are those who are kind of locked outside of those kinds of lovely, you know, the kinds of the kinds of places where people like to congregate. And those are now luxury goods, whereas they were once simply that's how human beings would organize themselves. So I think what, what we in some ways need to see is that what we really need is a different understanding of what the purpose and end of government is, what the purpose and the end of the market is. And you're probably going to need some amount of power. And here, to begin with, it will probably require some degree of centralized power to reassert command over the market, to limit the actual powers of the state toward the ends to which the state is rightly oriented. This is this this gets uh, classical liberals get really confused about this. Right, government is bad. Well, gov government is bad as if, if if in some ways it has unlimited power, but the only limit of the only limit of power is not the balance of you know separation of powers or, or balance of powers and so forth. As we know, that's easily broken through. The only real limit of, on power is a defined end of government. When you have a defined end of government and it's an end that in itself is self-limiting, then you have a limited government. And then you can justifiably use the powers of government to achieve that end. So if the end of government is to achieve human flourishing by, among other things, organizing and shaping a market that supports families and supports communities and supports the kinds of institutions like churches and civil associations that people need in order to flourish. Then you actually limit the government by using the powers of the government and you strengthen those parts of society that now constitute 
the mediating institutions that have otherwise been largely obliterated. So only in some ways by strengthening those institutions, ironically and paradoxically enough, through the use of the powers of the government, can you actually achieve a kind of limited government, uh, enliven and strengthen the experience of people in their local settings in ways that are genuinely empowering and not simply the sole possession of the wealthy and elite of our society today? Mm. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's uh, the, the power is, is is one thing that I think is coming back into the into the the spotlight of, of people, especially kind of on on the side of the of the divide. Um, because there's there's something inescapable about power. I think you know liberalism does kind of cover up the um, cover power in, in, in a sheen that says, okay, we're, we are not powerful. We are actually the opposite of powerful. But in, in through this trick, through this kind of uh, sleight of hand, of lies infinite power because you know power clad in, in, in victimhood uh, is, is is infinite because it does not see itself um, so that that's kind of the the thing I feel like a lot of people are reacting uh, against um, and uh, that's why a lot of people I see are, are you know uh, trying to talk about different forms of government that um, you know a lot of people have just uh, resigned to to history to to mothballs like there's there's quite a, a significant monarchist uh, or kind of neo-monarchist movement uh, um, there's uh, there's distributism that's coming up there's there's all sorts of forms of government that are being discussed not necessarily in the mainstream but more in kind of uh, in kind of uh, dissident circles um, but one thing that they have in common is is this kind of understanding that you either use power or you get used by power. This sounds very stark, but you know, there's there's a reality to, to get anything done. You know, there's n n nothing has ever gotten done by less than an oligarchy. The idea that you can rule by consensus is, is probably going to be a bit a bit hard to to, to swallow if you have a group of more than five people. Um, so. It's 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 an interesting corner of the internet, and I feel like uh, this is the the corner of the internet where um, the the question about the book comes up quite quite often. Like, why why is it a such a good descriptive book? Why is it so um, um, so clearly defines the problem? But why have you shied away from giving any recommendations at at the end of it? Uh, I know you're working on a on a second book that's uh, that's probably going to go in that direction. But um, is there is there any inkling of hope? that you could share with us uh, at this point? <laughs> uh, hope, but not optimism, to use a, a, a phrase uh, <laughs> that uh, was coined by the late, great Christopher Lash. Um, uh, you suggested that what's needed is a kind of oligarchy. Of course, I think you probably meant aristocracy. We have, we have an oligarchy, which is rule of the, rule of the wealthy, rule of the, uh, of the rich. Um, what we lack is an aristocracy which is the rule of the excellent, rule of those defined by virtue. Um, I'm, I'm less engaged in the question of the right form of government, which um, in the, both the classical and also the Catholic tradition is a matter of relative indifference uh, than the end or purpose of government, as I was suggesting before. And that's not a matter of indifference. Uh, one of the great things about, I'm actually teaching Aristotle right now in, in a couple of my classes, every class has to begin with good, a good dose of, of Aristotle, uh, just, to, just to set up, just to set uh, the, the, the plate for this is what, this is what, you know, 
this is what human beings once understood to be true about politics. And these are all the ways that we, we, we uh, went uh, out down the wrong path afterwards. Uh, but what Aristotle does is actually really quite nice, which is to, uh, which is to suggest that there are basically six forms of government, three good forms and three bad forms. And the three good forms uh, are, are rule of one, rule of few, and rule of many. And the three bad forms are rule of one, rule of few, and rule of many. <laughs> so it's almost indifferent what number of people you have governing. The question is, what is the end or purpose they rule for? And on the good side of the ledger, they rule for the common good. Or that is to say, they rule uh, in for the purpose and aim of providing the conditions for the greatest possible realization of human flourishing by Aristotle's definition, which is um, a life lived uh, in which the soul is um, developed by the active development of the virtues. So a society that develops the virtues of our citizens. Um, and a bad society is one in which the one, the few, or the many rule for the sake of their own benefit. Uh, and that, that, I think that's a really good way just to sort of say, we can have lots of forms and we can experiment with lots of different forms of rule. Uh, but what's really needed is a different understanding of what the ends of government are. So the, the project that I'm working on right now, um, you know, it continues the analysis of the last book, but what I'm really interested in is uh, a very ancient argument, probably won't surprise you, um, and um, discussion that you see in figures like Aristotle, who argued that really the, the best we could probably do in most circumstances was to create what he called a mixed regime or a mixed constitution. Right? If you can find a really great king or a really great aristocracy, that's really good. That's great. You know, good luck with that. Uh, but it's really hard to find, you know, a really, really good ruler and then try to continue that into the next generation. As we know, that's usually a, a very sad story. Uh, so you can occasionally get a great statesman, uh, but it tends to last for a relatively short period of time. And what figures like Aristotle, Cicero, um, uh, you know, a, a variety of ancient thinkers, um, Aquinas uh, commended was a, a form of government in which they said what you what you ideally want to do is combine what is going to be the the interest and and um, not just the interest but also the particular potentials of the elite of society with the interests and potentials of the mass or the many the people of society. These are two distinct groups that are found in almost every society. Right? And one of the problems of modernity was simply to say, well, we can get rid of one of these groups. Right? Mm. So the, so like sort of the neoliberal imagines everyone can be, everyone can be an elite someday, right? Mm. <laughs> someday everyone can go to Harvard or get into a good college and everyone will be a part of the elite. And of course, Marxism imagines someday we'll get rid of the elite and it will just be ruled by the many. And what I think is, uh, you know, that that's just a falsehood in which we've, we've built the falsehood of modern politics that somehow will eliminate this kind of ancient tension or this permanent tension in society. And I think here the ancient insight was really actually better, which is that you're always going to have an elite, you'll define it differently, and you'll always have a kind of the politics of the many. They can be really bad or they can be good. 
and but what's what's more, uh, someone like Aristotle recognized, they can either correct each other and even make each other better, or they can make each other worse. Mm -hmm. And how do you create the former while preventing the latter? And here he said, you know, you have to, in some ways, each has to be able to, to limit the corruptions and corruptingness of their own tendencies. You know, and we saw some of that recently, how the many can become a mob, mm -hmm. how they can become tend toward violence, how they can become frustrated and resentful toward the power of the elite. But we don't blame, or we ought, of course, modern society blame, we ought not to blame them. We ought to see the way that the elite contributed to the formation of that particular mentality of the many. And the same way that the many, in, in some ways, have a kind of responsibility to correct and limit the few. Now, the, what I think was understood by these ancient thinkers, and I think what really needs to be stressed today, is that the, there's always going to be a greater potential for the few to dominate over the many. It's just simply they have more ability to, to, to organize, to use the power uh, of um, the wealth and position that they have. There needs to be especially strenuous efforts of the many to limit these excesses of the few, while the, 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 the elite needs to, in some ways, be oriented to bettering those people who are attempting to correct them. So it's a very, it's a mm -hmm. very kind of complex dance that's needed. It's very difficult to attain. But I think this is, when we speak of populism today, What's often simply, it's often simply spoken of as, oh, it's when those masses get uppity and they, you know, they become a mob. But I think there's a really, there's a generative form of what we might call a kind of populism, which is this kind of a correct, this, this kind of power to correct and to limit the tendency of the few to rule on their own behalf, to sort of point them or orient them toward their particular excellences. Which, which is that their excellences are or ought to be the benefits of leisure, the benefits of the ability to promote art and beauty, the aesthetic right, uh, philosophy, the creation of a kind of society of beauty that elevates the lives of everyone, not simply themselves. Right? So what we were saying earlier, the kind, of, the kind of beautiful downtown that you could say that was one of the, that was a public gift that was often built by an elite of any society, the statuary, the architecture, the, just the town square itself, the public art. That's a gift, that's a public gift, but it's, it has to be built by a kind of elite. But in some ways, that has to be itself generated by the needs and demands of the many. So I think this, this very old idea of the mixed constitution needs a new articulation. Uh, and that's really what I'm trying to work on doing uh, in this book, which is a kind of, you know, it's a, it, on the one hand, it's an endorsement of a kind of populism, but it's an argument that populism itself needs to be rightly understood as a mutual ennobling of the few and the many, rather than simply the uprising of the many against the few. That we can either make each other better as classes, or we can be sort of, we can, we can make each other worse. And I think we are well into a dynamic in which we are making each other much worse. Mm, absolutely. Uh, I think there's there's an, another dimension to this that uh, seems to be more and more important. It's this idea of meritocracy. 
um, because the, these classes used to be quite quite separate, uh, you know, either ethnically, by bloodlines, by castes. You know, there was kind of a, a natural order uh, that was dictated from the heavens, and then that was it. But these these classes kind of seem to be feeding off each other. Um, I think you described this as, as strip mining at, at one point. And uh, being from Eastern Europe, I, I was one of the people who was, was strip mined myself. And uh, I, I moved to the West. I studied there. I lived there for 10 years. Now I'm, I've de-strip mined myself and got back to Romania, but um, this is a phenomenon and uh, I, I see this happening all over the world. A lot of people who are essentially the elite of their local you know, geographical region. Um, they aspire to, you know, higher standards of living, to rub elbows with the intelligentsia. They move to to the big cities, um, which are also, you know, just as a parallel, also uh, fertility sinks, which they've always been. Um, so essentially, it's 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 um, you know, I think one one blogger described it as a as a shredder, a fertility shredder, just moving all these these highly capable people to the cities, making sure they never reproduce, um, and it's. Um, and they, they are joining the ranks of the elite, but it's also an elite that that has this confidence in itself that okay I've I've come I've come to this place by the um, by my bootstraps I've 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 worked for this and there's there's not that noblesse oblige in in, in this in this kind of cast of, of um, self-made meritocratically elected people who've who've yeah who've clawed their way up up the ranks so do you think that that's, that might be kind of a dimension that plays into this? Oh, yeah, there's no doubt. And I think that speaks to what kind of elite that we have today, the nature of this elite, what what we regard as uh, the distinctive mark of the elite. Again, you know, this can vary from place to place and time to time. So what we've designated as the qualities of the elite today are, you know, we could, you know, we might say it's uh, certain kinds of a certain kind of intelligence, uh, a certain skill set. Um, you know, especially related to the ability to manipulate sort of abstract phenomena. The more scientific, technological we become, sort of what um, uh, what Robert Reich, uh, a generation uh, you know, several books ago, called uh, uh, symbolic analysts, uh, was the was the, the, the kind of the rising understanding of the new elite. Uh, but it's also we could define it as um, the capacity to live relatively deracinated lives, you know, kind of placeless. I mean, I, I've talked about the importance of the kinds of surroundings that elites like to, you know, they like to live in cities and to be surrounded by nice things. But, it, you know, you can move from place to place. You don't feel necessarily rooted in any particular city. Uh, you know, and a, and a hallmark is often, you know, I live for five years in D.C. I live for six years in New York. I live, you know, four years in London, eventually settle on, in the suburbs of X city. Uh, where I'll raise my two point one point two children, if if it's even that, and and have several dogs and a cat. Um, so we see this uh, this distinctiveness of the meritocracy as such um, is in particular the the development of this particular skill sets in which you learn. I, I think the thing you learn above all is the capacity of a kind of detachment, right? To deal with a kind of abstract set of phenomena that will become your work, to have this relatively detached relationship to the place where you live, to have a relatively detached relationship to the people that you're with. Now, you can have intense friendships in these places, but you also recognize that, you know, these are all fungible. Um, and the more and the, the more quickly and the more comprehensively these friendships can become sort of online or virtual friendships that you can travel with you wherever you go, 
you know, the, again, the, the, the sort of the more that this plays into the deracination that I think is a key quality of the meritocracy. So, so, it is, so yeah, I use this language of, of strip mining to describe what it is we do, searching for talent wherever we can find it, extracting it, processing it in the modern university, and then sending it out um, for um, its, uh, it, its, its usefulness into the modern economy. And of course, like strip mining, what this tends to do is to leave those places where we, where we find that talent in kind of the, the comparable condition uh, that, uh, that you leave a mountain after you've strip mined the coal from that mountain, except now we're talking about towns uh, and small cities around, from around the world. Now, the thing that, that, that I, I stress, you know, I teach at an elite school, the thing that I stress to my students is that they're driven by this imperative because this is what they've been told all their lives. This is what matters. This is what's important. This is, this is what constitutes the kind of ruling principle and, and membership in the elite in our society. But I suggested them this is, a, this is a course that has the potential of leaving them extremely unhappy and dissatisfied. Right? No one along the line will ever say what constitutes happiness, what constitutes sort of human flourishing and happiness. And I just, I just try to begin to introduce to them the question of in what way will this particular set of pursuits um, fulfill the things that you might, if you had to list down, what are the things that are most important to you? Friendship, love, maybe family, maybe a sense um, that I'm contributing something really important and good to society. And, and this, is, this is the one I really like to stress with them because they're usually young and ambitious, the sense that my life mattered. Sense that, you know, like if you know that movie, It's a Wonderful Life, that if I didn't, if I, if I hadn't existed, people would notice, you know, that, that my life made a difference. And here's where I say to them, you know, maybe uh, you should consider the possibility that your ambition, which is, is certainly can be an admirable thing, ought to lie in going to the place and doing the thing where it will be known that you mattered, where you made a difference. And if you go to Washington, D.C. or to New York City, in order to become a sort of minor functionary in the American empire, you know, in what way will your life have really made a big difference? Whereas if you settle somewhere uh, where it may, it may not be, it may be more on the periphery of the empire, uh, but with the gifts that you have, to get into a place like Notre Dame or Harvard, Yale, Princeton, with the gifts that you have, the kind of contribution you can make to those places could be absolutely outsized. You know, I, I, I always like to give them the example of, uh, do you know the movie um, uh, uh, Field of Dreams? Kevin mm -hmm. Costner. Yeah. Uh, if you build it, they will come. If, they, if you build it, they will come. Well, there's a great character in that movie. The, mo the movie in the original book is based on a number of real figures and kind of an imaginary retelling of their lives. But the character that's played by Burt Lancaster, uh, Moonlight, Archie, Archibald Moonlight Graham, is one of my favorite figures uh, in sort of American history, I guess, uh, because of who he was. He was, you know, obviously he got very brief moment playing in baseball uh, but he was the renowned beloved doctor of this small town of Chisholm Minnesota and the story that's told of him in the field of dreams is kind of true that he was really beloved 
Uh, he was remembered. There are monuments to him. There's a scholarship that's still given uh, to students at the Chisholm High School. Uh, he would keep his practice open on Saturdays to, to, to uh, uh, free of charge to check uh, the eyesight of children in the town. Now, if this guy had lived today, you can be certain he would have been, he would have been uh, swooped up in the strip mining operation because he would have been told his entire life that in order for you to matter and to make a difference and to be an important human being, you need to go off and join this massive practice in Washington, you know, on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. or what, what you will. And so I, I think, you know, in continuing this, what I was just saying in, in our last exchange, when we think of what, how do we build a society in which the, the elite, the people who occupy the leadership of our society will contribute in very material and very memorable ways and important ways to the flourishing of the lives of ordinary people. It's to begin to shape, encourage, but also begin to shape a world in which this ideal, the ideal of contributing in a way that, um, you know, it may not be world shattering in some ways, but cumulatively, cumulatively, of course, it is world shattering and it is world shaping. And, and many of our problems seem, seems to me today, certainly as I see them in the United States, comes from the fact that we have largely, you know, we've created this concentration of the people that we view as the ruling class, very much at the expense of the people who we see as the, you know, the deplorables of the detritus. And we're now experiencing the massive political dislocation that occurs from that separation uh, and, and, and that, you know, extreme form of division in our society. Yes, it's, um, I think there, there, there are quite a lot of phenomena at the basis of this, but there, there are also very subtle things, uh, so things that have to do with speed, like, for example, um, let's say, maybe 10 to 20 years ago, maybe two or three percent of, of people in, in my hometown would go off to university um, and then m most of them would, would come back after after a few years and they would contribute to the to the local economy. Uh, but then once, you know, the, the borders opened uh, now, I would say maybe 20, 30 percent go away and uh, a lot of them don't come back. And the fewer people come back, it, it kind of has a, a, a way of accelerating the process. It's you know, kind of the, the strip mining intensifies itself yeah. because the places where they could come back are less worthy of coming back right, to. Right, exactly. Why would I go back there? There's nobody good there anymore, right? Yeah, so it does become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. And there's there's also um, kind of the the effect that in, in big cities, um, there's, um, there's kind of a, in, in the economics, we call it a, a revealed preference um, in the sense that um, human interactions carry a little bit of friction. And we've been used to um, to to dealing with the market at at the lowest point of friction possible, and, and I see this with you know with social networks, with even with you know food delivery. People bring stuff to your door; you don't even have to talk to them. So the the social friction has been eliminated completely out of the system, um, and that's in a way a revealed preference. So people, if if you have them choose, they they will you know they maybe say that they that they like to have social interactions, but in practice they did rather avoid it. Um, but it's something that accumulates and it, it feels like it's, it's, it, it atrophies. Like the, I feel like yeah. I, 
even me, obviously now after a year living in, in, in the bunker, I feel very atrophied. But even before, it felt like all of these um, the, all of these market mediated interactions were made for my most the most expedient comfort that I could imagine. Just like, yeah, don't don't you don't need to talk to them. You know, it used to be you had to call them up, then you had to text them. Now it's all through a chat windows. You know, the the the, the touch points, they call them in tech, you know, the touch point, minimize the touch points. Um, and I feel like we, we've done this and even even having neighbors in London, you know, I maybe I knew two of them, but it, that was I, I was quite gregarious because I did know two of them. Uh, it, it's just it, it kind of became the standard. So it feels to me like many of these changes because of the speed, because of the kind of the, the market kind of encroaching in every area of our lives are very insidious. And they're also they, they have a way of making themselves permanent. Like you get to a point where you can't even treat the other people like you used to treat them 20 years ago because no one else is reciprocating. I don't know, it feels like a game theoretic stalemate that we've we've brought ourselves in very subtle ways. We've, we've gotten to this point. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and I think you'll appreciate this. Uh, I was invited, I taught in uh, Notre Dame's London program in the fall of 2019, which, you know, was very fortunate because it was just before COVID. So it was a great time to be there, but it was, of course, an amazing time to be there for political reasons. It was, you know, you had Boris Johnson's machinations, you had Brexit reaching its point of culmination. Uh, the, the election, I was there during the election, which Boris Johnson won all of these uh, former labor uh, districts. It was really an extraordinary time. And while I was there, I was invited to come speak to a very kind of elite group of uh, business people uh, and uh, politicians. Uh, it was a it was a kind of group that uh, regularly met um, and uh, talked about big issues. And they learned I was in London, so they said, "Oh, this this author, let's let's get him out here." So I opened it with a little bit of talk of a talk along the lines of what we've been talking about: the problems and challenge of liberalism. And then I asked them what they thought the biggest problems sort of facing the, you know, their, the world or their lives were. And I expected it to be a kind of gripe session about Brexit, about, you know, these, these, these backward old fashioned people who, you know, were just wanted to disconnect England from the world. That's what I expected. And what I heard instead was exactly what you just said, almost to a person, they said, our lives are just you know, completely fragmented. We don't know anyone. Uh, we don't. We can't develop deep friendships. Most of our lives are spent, you know, sort of traveling between some flat outside of London and you know, sitting on a on a tube, you know, with these things in my ears, and shutting everyone out, and then having some kind of fleeting interaction with people in the workplace, and then coming home at night. That's like an epidemic of kind of disconnection was what I heard. And this was, these were people who we, we would call successful. And by some measure, we would call them happy, or at least, you know, had the external conditions of happiness. If Steven Pinker were studying them, he would say, this is what constituted happiness, right? That was really, it was just absolutely stunning to me that in a kind of open forum of talking about um, what were the great challenges of, of, of modern life, that that would be uh, that would be the thing that, above all, they continued to to repeat, and this is you know this is really the um, this is really the argument of the the book that I wrote, why liberalism failed. It's as as you know the the thesis was n it is not that liberalism failed because it fell short. 
the thesis of that liberalism failed because it succeeded. And one of the ways that it succeeds is precisely, I love the way you describe this as reducing the touch points or you know, the, the contactless society. Uh, that's, that's one of the ways you mark its success because the, the ideal of the liberal worldview is one in which our, our pers the demands on my personal sense of duty and obligation are minimized to the point of nil. Right? They are reduced to the point where all of my interactions can either be handled by the market or by the mechanisms of the state through welfare programs and so forth. So that while I'm while I have a good heart, and I'll, any any of these people with these minimal touch points would all say I, I you know, I'm, a, I'm a person of the left. I believe we need to take care of the disadvantaged and so forth. Liberalism in some way says you shouldn't have to do that yourself. We'll we'll have all these you know depersonalized mechanisms to arrange for that. Uh, in his great essay uh, on um, the revolt of the elites by Christopher Lash, whose name I mentioned. Uh, he has a great line where he says, you know, the new elite, this meritocracy, has all of the sort of privileges and position of the old aristocracy um, without the noblesse oblige. So they have all of their all of their vices and none of their virtues. And it's it's you know, it's the achievement of this condition of this depersonalized, non-touch society that on the one hand, as I as I was just saying, is the source of deep, profound political conflict in our world. But if my experience and your experience is any indication, it's also a source of deep discontent and unhappiness among the people who arguably are most benefiting from these arrangements. So why do we keep doing this? <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I, and I completely, you know, echo those sentiments. That's partly also why, why I moved away from London, why my husband also moved away. We were kind of both a, a bit kind of corporate. I used to work in tech. He used to be an engineer. Um, and it, it's just, it's, it's, it's exactly that. It's um, it's it's also partly also because we um, we have this you know consent based relationship with other people. Where um, I remember growing up in Romania, where you know if you wanted to make a good friend, you would have to make you know what would now be called a racist joke because we're all this is a patchwork of ethnicities in this area, and there's always some some way of of, of riffing on each other that you know the, the easiest or the, the most succinct way to to get on someone's nerves is to say something about their you know them being Hungarian or something, um, and that was you know there was kind of this this ease of of you know. Mm, cohabitating in the same space and and you know there, there weren't really limits there weren't there wasn't really the idea of okay you know you're, you're gonna get in trouble for saying x or y um and i feel like now because we're trying to always have you know purely consensual purely don't step on my toes relationships with people it really does kind of act as a as a um, as a buffer between people that you know you never really can reach out and and have those maybe you know I've always likened this to like, you know, banter on a construction crew, you know, people, you know, their lives depend on each other in, in the military or things like that. They're not going to be, you know, they're not going to be courteous to each other because, you know, that's kind of how you how you build trust. And I feel like because we're, we're trying to to have this really um, pleasant society and, and, you know, cohabitate with so many different people, because that's also life in a big city. There, there are people from all sorts of backgrounds. You never want to be offensive. You always want to kind of, you know, walk the line. Um, but that also 
keeps you away from from the kind of relationships because these are all excellent people highly intelligent people that i know from my life and we could have been you know great friends but it never gets to that point um you know it's obviously not just about dirty jokes but it's 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 that thing where you know there's just always a layer of of keep away so so if i can turn the interview around for just a second um uh because i do um I do talk to my students a lot about this and they have the view that, well, you know, I would like to, you know, I would like to settle down in a place where I can afford a life and have a, have the prospect of, of forming a family, but you know, I can't do it because I have so much college debt and, uh, and my whole, my life has been oriented toward getting the right kind of job and so forth. So you seem to be an example of someone, as you just said, who lived the life uh, that they aspire to and now has, seemingly abandoned at least one form of that for um, to return to the place that you're supposed to escape from and never return to. So how has that been? Uh, it, can you find a, a good and decent life and rewarding life out in the hustings, if, if that's how you, do, you would describe it? Uh, can you recommend it? And if my students watch this, um, uh, what can you say to them in terms of uh, perhaps some other possible futures they might envision? I would recommend that they think outside the box because their their skills are infinite and the the opportunities to do anything at this at this point you know they they shock me every day how how much you can do uh, if you're just simply a verbal person you can you can you know you can use this tool the internet that we you know I, I I decry its corruptions every day but at the same time it's it's also useful for me to make a living um, and you know being and and living you know where I want to be, you know, I'm close to family now. Um, it's everything is possible. I feel like a, a lot of people who grew up uh, and wanted to be part of the, the hierarchies of the West, because there's just kind of a, a, there's a shine to the West that, that exists in Eastern Europe that, you know, people have forgotten about, but we still, we still look up to the West in, in quite a big way. So being part of, you know, the, the Western elite of people who, who, who make the big money in, in the big city, um, it's great, but, um, you know, especially to be honest, as, as a woman, you know, it gets old fairly fast. You know, you've, you realize, oh, I can play this game but you know with every stratum that I rise what I get is quite a bit more money but a hell of a lot more responsibility and sleepless nights so um, this is a trade-off that just doesn't work for me um, so yeah I think um, I think people should just you know keep their options open and try to not necessarily buy into the class the, the usual hierarchies because we, we see them falling apart before our very eyes now you know the the credentialism apparatus you know the the so-called elites um, they're they're you know the emperor is looking more and more naked every day and I feel like people should you know should pay attention to that because you can you can be an elite you know from from the comfort of a of a you know of a of a hick town in in eastern europe and in some ways if if that's if that's your ambition you know the the internet as i said is is a tool you know is a horrible master but a very very good tool um so yeah um you know anything's possible <laughs> yeah well so if my students listen to that and i hope you will and i'm actually now going to recommend it not because of me but because of you and that answer you should be following Alex on Twitter and uh, reading her essays online because uh, I really do think you are uh, one of the more important voices of your generation and especially as someone who's, who, who, who was successful by all the measures of what, we, of what we claim to be successful and realized that it was a kind of false, a false image or a kind of mirage of success. And I think 
have shown, you know, you're one person who's shown a, a kind of way to uh, forge an alternative path. So, so I think, uh, I hope that my, my students and a lot of young people will be, will be tuning in. Oh, thank you so much. That, that, that means a lot. Um, I, I guess I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit you with a, with a, with a hard question. Um, it's, you know, it's hard because this is, this is what a libertarian might say to this whole discussion. Um, why, why can't people just choose to, to live in, in small communities, be virtuous, be religious, you know, just, you know, you, you all, you have the option to choose. Um, why can't they, and why aren't they? Yeah, well, of course that, that's, you know, that's right. Uh, that, uh, um, in some ways, no. I've just as I said, I've been teaching Aristotle, and Aristotle is the first to point out that it's you don't you don't achieve virtue unless you choose it. So that um, uh, a person who never who seems to act virtuously but never has actually reflected or really ever consciously chosen to be virtuous, actually, he says, you know, can be have the appearance of virtue, but actually isn't virtuous. And I think as a human being, choice is inescapable. I mean, Aristotle will be the first to acknowledge this, that you can't, you can't do virtue on a kind of autopilot because virtue is also always the calculation and reflection of, you know, how do I act in this particular circumstance? I can't just and reenact what I did in the last circumstance. I have to reflect, right, the, the, the virtue par excellence is prudence or judgment. Uh, and I always have to be reflecting on what the virtuous choice would be in this circumstance. But the, you know, the, the, I think the libertarian view is the following that um, actually I tell the story, I tell the story in, in, in the, in the liberal, in the liberalism book. Um, uh, we were talking, I was at, a, when I taught at Princeton, my first academic job, uh, I was at a dinner uh, in which the subject of the Amish came up. And there was a book that had just been released, I think also a movie called Rumspringa, uh, which is the tradition in some Amish communities where a young, you know, sort of, well, an older teenager, young adult is required or forced to leave the community for a year or two and to live out in the liberal world and to experience the, this other world, uh, at the end of which then they have to make this, this decision of whether or not to live in that world permanently or to re-enter the Amish community where they will live according to the much, you know, those strictures uh, of, of life uh, that are, you know, would be seen by liberal society as limiting uh, and as, as highly restrictive of their individual liberty. Uh, and um, this book uh, talks about this phenomenon and then notes that somewhere in the order of 80 to 90% of the young people who do this, uh, do this, practice end up returning to the community. And the group around the table um, were furious about this and became quite agitated, a Princeton faculty, because in their view, these young people weren't exercising actual choice. Mm -hmm. They had been so brainwashed, so shaped by the worldview that they came from, that they couldn't make an actual genuine choice like you would make behind Rawls's veil of ignorance or in the state of nature because they weren't really free, right? The choice wasn't really free. That the only way you can actually make a free choice is when you are actually already a liberal human being. That's the only human being that can make a free choice. Well, guess what? Then, then you've already stacked the game. 
you've stacked the game as much as the Amish have, right? In a sense, because what you've done is you said, you know, in order for you to make a free choice, you need to have, you need to, ha you need to come from a world, from an experience, or have had your life shaped with complete disconnection to any worldview, to any religious upbringing, to any sense that you, be you know, you belong in a place, that you have a history in a place, that you're the heir of a tradition, that you have a culture, any sense that 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 you inherit something or have been given something that could in some ways define you or limit you needs to be in in some form extirpated and we extirpate that by creating an essentially libertarian society and then you can say it's fine if you want to choose at that point right mm -hmm. but in in some sense you've you've already had your worldview shaped so the libertarian is playing sort of both sides of the of the of, of the game here, if that's, if, in some ways, if that's the question, which is that you can, you can have your religion, you can have your belief system, but don't foist that view on someone else, especially your children. And if you look at what's happening right now, uh, not incidentally, if you look at what's happening right now, you're seeing a growing movement in certain intellectual circles, like, um, for example, some people in the Harvard Law School, not Adrian Vermeule, but other people <laughs> who are pressing for, um, much more state intervention in uh, in family situations that now are increasingly viewed as oppressive, uh, especially, of course, religious families. That because of a religious upbringing, this is now increasingly being defined as you as you would expect in an increasingly liberal society. This is being defined as a form of oppression, a form of brainwashing, and I would thoroughly expect that if things continue in the way that they're going, we're going to see a growing legal and political movement to liberate these people who were imprisoned in these kinds of limit, limiting first societies, right? I, I think this is really the trajectory uh, of, 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 of this path of freeing people to become completely free and sovereign choosers. So I, I, I guess I would say that, that there's no condition, there's no condition in which we are not shaped by a set of preconditions that lead us to certain kinds of choices, what Cass Sunstein calls a choice architecture. Mm -hmm. And my question would be, is it a good choice architecture or is it a bad choice architecture? Not mm -hmm. whether, you know, we have choice, but whether the choice architecture is going to, you know, Cass Sunstein's view, it should be, you know, if you set up a, a cafeteria in a school, you should first go past the fruit and the, and the healthy food <laughs> and get to the desserts after your tray is full. In my world, it would be is your choice architecture is one in which you're taught and you know, encouraged to develop certain kinds of virtues, certain kinds of practices, to you know, be encouraged to think in terms of the community and not just simply my own individual pursuit and end. You know, there's lots of ways we can organize choice architectures, but to pretend that you can create a situation in which there's no choice architecture is to create a choice architecture. And that's the Absolutely. libertarian conceit. Yes, and, and this just makes me think about the, the, the topic of stigma, which is now being discussed uh, a lot, especially in, in relation to, to this new definition of sex work. Everything's trying to be destigmatized, normal, normalize X, normalize Y. That's what we hear all the time. Um, and to me, 
stigma is essentially the the choice architecture of society at large. It, it sets kind of a it, it's it's one of the guardrails, and I think it's a very important guardrail that you know people now are trying to 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 tear down, um, especially when it comes to to things that, um, for example, if if you have the the individual you know without without a moral substructure that might you know might have been might have grown up as a weed you know with with, with some parents that were not invested in, in their moral education is not religious, um, and you have let's say an eighteen year old girl who just you know is is now an adult, um, and she will do what is expedient for her. In, in in the short term, which why it might involve all sorts of you know pornography things like that, uh, and our society has absolutely no guardrails for her. It's also not going to stigmatize her, obviously, because it's not it's not proper to stigmatize people because that's the, the worst thing you could do. And they're essentially just letting her her go to exploit herself in in any way she sees possible for you know the most expedient end. If it were a man, it might be drug dealing or or whatever something else. But there there are all sorts of options to make money quick, little get get rich quick schemes by exploiting yourself or, or your future, um, and by by just ripping out this this idea of stigma because it, it might you know uh, I I know it, it is hurtful. Obviously, shame is hurtful, um, but the idea that we can we can have a society without stigma, I think, is is quite um, you know it's 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 shooting ourselves in the foot in a, in a very big way, um, and especially the most vulnerable people because you know some people still get a bit of education from home even just by you know by observing their their parents and then things like that, but it's actually the people who get the least amount of education from home that are most prone to, to falling into these traps that were almost secured by stigma in, in the past where, you know, you shouldn't do this because people will look down on you. Uh, now it's, it's all normalized. And I feel like we've, we've just been, been letting these people go to the wolves. Uh, and it's actually increasing the divide between the elites and, and the lower classes. And, um, yeah. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think it also needs to be stressed that um, what we're, what we're actually talking about right now is not the elimination of stigma, but the transference of stigma. It's not, it's not disappearing. But it's simply what we stigmatize is a is a different is a different set of behaviors or beliefs or dispositions. Uh, you know, we just had an actress uh, on on Disney uh, fired yesterday, apparently, uh, for not putting up the pronouns and refusing to put up her pronouns on her social media website, and then the kind of denunciations that followed and her responses to those. So if you you know if you don't exhibit the right Mm. That, that you you know you you are in accord with what is regarded as the you know the right behavior the right belief you know virtue signaling and so forth uh you will be stigmatized yeah absolutely it does feel uh, to be... me like the the only area where we've left space for stigma is uh in people who are supposedly the stigmatizers so we will tolerate everything except for the intolerant. Right. So the, that's, yeah. that's, it feels like the only corner that's, that's left. And it may it kind of makes sense. It has a bit of an internal logic to it because yeah. uh, we need to, we need to scapegoat someone. And, and right. that's, that's, that's where we, that's where we land. Um, yeah, but what's, yeah. What's, yeah. Yeah. What, what's called repressive tolerance. Yeah. You, you will, you will be forced uh, to be non-judgmental. And, you know, this, this goes back to, I think to what you were talking about in terms of, you know, building a city like London, and you know when you walk around London, <laughs> which is a, it's marvelous, isn't it? It's just a, it's a, it is a great it's just one of the world's great cities. But it's also a city that's thickly overlaid with this palpable history 
And what you really quickly realize is how thick the communities were everywhere in London. You know, in some places they might still be. But the, the ways that the city was kind of built and structured was that it wasn't, it wasn't a place where you went to be anonymous. It was a place that you went right, to be a part of a community. And I think this is certainly true of American cities as well. You know, I, I, I grew up not too far from New York City. And New York City was, was at least at one time a city of, of course, it was a city of ethnic neighborhoods. And you still see evidence of that in you know, Little Italy and Chinatown. Yorktown was the German part. Uh, my family was Irish. Irish Catholic, and there were sections of New York uh, that was replete with those communities. But these were places of, of sort of thick communities. So the problem isn't, it's not that people want to live in cities. I think a city is, you know, as the Greeks understood the, the idea of the polis, the city was the place where people would congregate because they wanted to be with and among other people. The problem is, is that when you create a liberal order, the cities become almost like the key point of this contactless society. And so the, this sort of, the, 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 the norm of the society or that which we, the, that against which we stigmatize is, um, comes to be known as judgmentalism, right? You, mm -hmm. you shouldn't judge other people, right? You shouldn't, uh, uh, you should uh, exhibit this kind of non-judgmentalism. But another way of, of describing that in non-liberal terms is that you, you, um, you, what is being promoted is a kind of indifference. And I, I think that at core is what sort of non-judgmentalism is, that we institutionalize indifference. And that to me, that's a great vice of a civilization, is where we encourage a kind of indifference. So we, we overlay our indifference with this kind of social justice virtue signaling concern, but of course it's built on a foundation of indifference in which we are, we liberate ourselves from having to be actually deeply concerned or involved in the lives of others. It's, it seems to me a very pernicious and ultimately unsustainable way to organize a civilization. Exactly. Um, are you familiar with the, the concept of a supernormal stimuli? Sounds interesting. Tell me. <laughs> it's a it's a kind of de derived from biology, and I think it's it's an interesting lens to to look at. Um, you know what what makes the market nowadays different from kind of the 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 market that maybe Hayek uh, imagined, and what it what's a supernormal stimulus is is. Um, um, when, when an organism reacts to a, a visual or a sensory stimulus in a very particular way that's patterned on, you know, kind of their evolutionary uh, instinct. Um, and they they react kind of in a superordinate way to a, to a, to a stimulus that is greater than. So the, 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 the example that people typically use is a, is a creature called the, the jewel beetle that you can find in the Australian outback that's very attracted to uh, females of the species that are kind of amber and they're glistening. Um, but at one point, people started throwing beer bottles into into the the outback, and uh, they found that these jewel beetles would, uh, you know, intensely copulate with the beer bottles to the uh, to the you know they, they were ignoring everything else. You know, the population was imploding, and and it wasn't it wasn't a good situation for the jewel beetle. And I feel like, um, especially with technology and things like you know A/B testing, uh, iterative improvements, you know, focus groups, all this stuff. 
um, we essentially have created a, a similar version of, of supernormal stimuli, but geared, pointed towards towards our brains, towards our instincts. Um, and you see this with food; it's like hyper palatable. You see this with um, gambling, um, you know, pornography. All of these things have are, are perfectly made, and, and with every day they're ever perfect, more perfect to kind of stimulate parts of our brains that are, um, you know, we're not really in control of. You know, there's. Uh, the the perfect way of getting someone to buy your product is to turn them into an addict, um, and I feel like a lot of these a lot of these products and a lot of these things that you know theoretically, if you'd ask Hayek, they're they're you know increasing you know utility, uh, they're um, you know they're providing benefit, um, but actually they're they're just making people addicted to them. So I feel like this is this is kind of a layer to the to the whole thing where. Um, you know, it's 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 quite a a, a cor corruptive force um, that we're not taking into account, and you know, because there's no guiding principle on these systems except for shareholder value and how much you know how much you know you can you can give them in terms of money. Um, I feel like you know this is kind of a bit of a runaway force. Yeah, there's no, there is no there there is no limit because um, it's based upon a theory of human nature that you know goes back to you know, the, the same period roughly when you have political liberalism uh, coming into being which holds the view it was an effort to reject the classical and christian understanding of the human person uh, it holds the view that uh, the object and aim of human life is to the greatest extent possible to increase pleasure the especially the experience of physical pleasure uh, and to decrease pain so it's, it's, it's utilitarian uh, in, at its base so that anything that increases pleasure uh, and especially increases pleasure for the most people is therefore by definition good and that which decreases uh, pain and especially physical pain is by definition bad. Now the core understanding of virtue in the classical and Christian understanding is that an excess, certainly an excess of pleasure is bad, uh, that it actually detracts from our capacity uh, to live lives of moderation, but also to understand and aspire to things that are higher than the hedonic principle of achieving pleasure. So that in a civilization with a different understanding of the human person, it's able to say, you know, when it comes to things like excessive gambling or pornography or, you know, excessive eating, we can put a limit on that. We can legally say there's a limit on what you should be able to do with gambling or pornography and so forth. Uh, but when your principle becomes increased pleasure and decreased pain, there's no limit. There's no limit that you can agree to as a society. And this is where the, the, the theory of, of, of the harm principle that you see in the, the subsequent iteration of or articulation of, of utilitarianism of John Stuart Mill comes into play. The only um, legitimate limitation um, on people's desire to do what they want becomes that which we can recognize as harmful. Now, in theory, that would allow us to say, okay, if you engage in excess, you know, uh, you know excess uh, you know, uh, uh, quantities of pornography or what, you know, whatever it might be, that would constitute harm. But of course, we can't agree. Uh, that's you know once once uh, once the, especially the pleasure principle is is put into full effect. There's no agreement on that. So the only thing that we tend to be able to agree is that which constitutes harm, is that which causes us physical pain. 
so that's the one thing, you know, that's the one thing that you can increasingly uh, use as a principle of governance of control. And here's the really interesting thing that I think we're seeing happening is that this experience of pain now is regarded as something that can be, uh, that can be appealed to as a subjective standard when it is experienced by someone who can claim persecution. You see what's happening, mm -hmm. we were talking about campuses earlier, but when you see what's happening on college campuses and elsewhere, those who are able to appeal to the authority in those institutions and increasingly in public authorities is that they have been harmed right, by, by an exposure to some point of view or some ideology or some perspective that has damaged who they are, that has attacked or been experienced as an attack upon their identity or their person. So the harm principle, which was originally meant to sort of reduce the ability of a government or authority to go after our, our experience of pleasure, is now being used as a kind of weapon uh, to go after people who do not exhibit sufficient indifference, right? who do not exhibit sufficient indifference toward what might or might not, in fact, be how we might or might not define harm. So we have this really inversion now of what was supposed to be the society, the, the, the I think you put it, what was it, the, the, the frictionless society in which those, the structures we built to maintain some degree of public control, the harm principle is now used increasingly to go after authoritatively with the use of political power as well as informal power, corporate power and so forth to go after the people who might have any reservation against the frictionless society. So it's kind of now the perfect, <laughs> perfectly encapsulated order of domination. Exactly. And it's, it's um, I think a, a lot of people have been observing that, you know, these, uh, these principles are, are, they only work when they're oriented towards one side of the, of the, of the political spectrum. Yeah. I, you know, I, 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 we have people now who, who, you know, many of my friends who think that we can we can finally uh, those of us who feel oppressed in this condition can sort of score points by pointing out hypocrisy. This this will this will do nothing. Right? My friend Adrian Vermeule, you know, has coined the phrase, uh, "It's it's not hypocrisy, uh, it's power," uh, and that there's no hypocrisy involved uh, if you don't think that you're abrogating a standard. Hypocrisy is when you agree that there's a standard that we are abrogating or or disrespecting. Well, there's no standard in this case that's being abrogated. It's actually simply the raw imposition of power of those who have defined the human person in a certain way and the object and purpose of human society toward a certain end. And I think what everyone is realizing, whether they like it or not, and many like it and many don't, is that this form, this political form, now dominates, certainly dominates the West. But its domination, and this is maybe the ultimate sort of why liberalism failed observation, uh, the form of domination is no longer under the claim that this is a form of liberty in some ways. It requires a titanic exercise of state authority and even suppression and oppression. Right? It's not simply that it's some kind of consensual, largely agreed upon form of political organization it is actually taking the form of, a, you know, as we said earlier, re repressive toleration, that those who do not sign on to this political, social, economic form will henceforth be very visibly uh, oppressed politically, socially, economically, and otherwise. 
Yes, and it's 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 very interesting how uh, you know a, a lot of libertarians got a you know a cold shower by seeing how fast the the free market uh, you know collaborated and actually took took the first steps in enforcing you know the the, the monoculture that you know we're all supposed to be uh, to be to be kind of the the inquisition and you you know everyone expects the state to 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 step in and do that but um, you know I've I've, I've heard quite. Um, you know, very, very muted noises from the libertarian camp in this in this time where they were like, you know, a few of them actually did say that, oh, OK, these are these are free companies. These are private companies. Uh, they should be able to do but what they want. But then Parler got, uh, you know, nuked, uh, you know, people get disenfranchised, you know, MasterCard doesn't want to deal with you. And slowly, slowly, there's not that much uh, commentary <laughs> from from their side. Um, and it, it's clear that, uh, you know, power works through through different channels and okay. um and we're at the point where the, the state and the market you know not necessarily that one is corrupted by the other but they're both at the scale where you know it's it's impossible to almost tell them apart yeah no we uh, uh <laughs> yeah we uh we see this um yeah the, I, I do think it i do think it really reflects the 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 paradox of the libertarian position, ultimately the contradiction, the internal contradiction of the of the libertarian condition uh, position, uh, which which is I think highlighted by the increasingly oppressive power that's played uh, by major actors in the marketplace. Uh, and if your view is that you know they should be able to do as they wish, then the suppression of individuals in the society is you know one of those results. And you know so what what is the what is the What's the predominating principle here? Is it the freedom of the, the corporation to act as it wishes? Is it the freedom of the individuals to be able to express themselves as they wish? Uh, I, I, I think it, kind of, it reflects that every society always has some kind of authoritative set of world uh, perspectives and worldviews or, or an authoritative set of norms. And the libertarian view is you can organize a society somehow without an authoritative set of norms. Uh, without it, without some kind of authoritative worldview, but you're never going to be able to escape it. And I, what I find in some ways refreshing about where we are right now, as terrifying as it is, uh, is that I think we can sort of more or less ignore those people who who want to say we can have some kind of society without any kind of authoritative norms. Really, what we're in the midst of right now is debating. It seems to me it's inescapable of debating what those authoritative norms should be, what they are, and what they should be. And so I think that for a long time, certainly in American, uh, in recent American history, there was like one political party that simply said, you know, we can, we can escape from the authoritative norms. Uh, we can more or less live, we can coexist without any kind of imposition of those norms. Uh, and the, the political left has always, I think, you know, interestingly, been much more confident in what its, its norms are, what its beliefs are. Uh, and that's becoming really very clear, certainly in American society. Uh, and the question on the conservative side of the ledger is, are you, are you going to revert back to and try to hide behind some kind of these purportedly neutral set of norms or procedural, uh, procedural uh, protections? Or are you going to begin to develop and articulate what is a, you know, a contrasting and seems to me very powerful but necessary uh, corrective to uh, that which opposes you. And I, I think right now we're in this very, you know, fruitful 
uh, moment, or at least potentially fruitful moment, that could go very, could go very, uh, could go very, very badly, if um, if there's not a willingness or capacity, especially of the political classes, to step up uh, to the needs of this moment. Exactly. There's just, there's quite a, a lot of interesting new forms of, of conservatism. And I think, you know, conservatism proper uh, in the sense of, you know, kind of something that em embodies virtue ethics that, that brings, you know, natural law back into the forefront um, and not, you know, Koch brothers, open borders conservatism that I think a lot of people are rejecting. No, yeah. people don't like the, the, the libertarianism of the market because they see, they, they experience viscerally what it's done to their communities. And, you know, everyone knows what, what, what happens when this you know gdp goes up i'm not i'm not disputing that but i think gdp as a measure i think is uh is falling out of fashion yeah well it's, it's a little it's a little rough it doesn't it doesn't get into the fine-grained uh ways that the gdp tends to pool in certain places and, <laughs> exactly. uh, and not other places so, yeah it just uh, trickles upward <laughs> yeah well you, you're probably familiar with uh, that uh four box uh graph uh, after the 2016 election that showed sort of where the Clinton Trump electorate broke down and it divided up the electorate into these four quadrants of uh, economic and social libertarianism and uh, economic and social conservatism and economic um, uh, sort of uh, more interventionism and social libertarianism uh, and uh, social conservatism and economic libertarianism. I don't know if I got it all four, but the upshot was that there's really there's no voters in the libertarian quadrant right it's yeah. a, they have all of the foundation money they have an outsized voice in kind of the public policy world but there's no electorate there right? there's nobody I, I always like to joke and say they, they don't exist by nature they have to be created in a laboratory in the basement <laughs> of the cato institute uh there's there's really no one that wants that really wants this sort of unregulated world and where uh, what Donald Trump uh, in his sort of idiot savant genius recognized was that there was a, a segment of the political market that wasn't being served by the Democrats nor the Republicans, right? You had the Democrats serving the, the corner of the market really, really you know, kind of concentrated of uh, economic um, interventionists or social Democrats uh, and uh, social libertarians. That's where all sort of the, the mass of, of Hillary's voters were. And then you had a significant part of the market that was old fashioned Republican, which was social conservative and economic libertarian. But most of it was really crowded around the axis where you had economic um, sort of more social justice or redistribution or however you want to call it um, and, uh, and social conservatism. And that's where that's where Donald Trump really placed himself was a was a more sort of economically protectionist. We'll have boundaries and borders. We'll we'll slow down the rate of immigration. We'll we'll exercise some some degree of you know trade um, correction with with, uh, with China in particular. Um, we will, uh, but but at the same time, of course, endorsing certain social conservative policies that would be appealing uh, to um, religious people. And what we need to realize in the American context uh, is that this is also where a lot of African-American and, and Hispanics are. They tend to be economically more what we would call liberal, uh, mm -hmm. not libertarian, um, but also more socially conservative. And if, if conservatism has a future, in my view, it will be building out that part of the quadrant uh, and making it especially welcome 
uh, to African Americans and to Hispanics, uh, who I think naturally would be drawn to the, to to people who would run in that part of the quadrant against the wokesters and against the libertarian economists. And it would be actually a very powerful ruling uh, coalition in the United States to have a kind of white African-American and Hispanic working class party with a new and very different elite that would have to be formed and shaped in guiding that and would really completely scramble and redefine the things that we typically think about now about the American population. And I'll make a further argument, which will probably deperson me, which is that this is the only real way to confront racism in America. It's not the elite driven project of wokeism, which I think anyone with any sense knows this will actually drive a deep wedge, a deeper wedge between the races in America. I mean, it's fundamentally racist in its nature. The way to actually heal and repair the racial divide in America is building a multiracial, multi-ethnic working class political party in America, which was once the kind of the ambition of the Democratic Party, but it threw it off in the 1960s and no one has taken it up since then. And I, can't, I come from a Democratic Party background, I'm Irish Catholic, that's my, my native home, but I've despaired of the Democrats because they seem to have abandoned that core project. And interestingly, I think there are at least elements right now within the Republican Party that are interested in beginning to build that out. Now, I also think there are elements in the Republican Party who just want to revive zombie Reaganism. And that's a real concern right now. But there's a real fight that's taking place within the political, the more conservative element of, of American politics that I think has some potential for rescrambling the way we think about American politics. And I think it's a much more promising future in terms of economic as well as racial justice. Mm, absolutely. And it's it's also quite heartening because as someone who's in Eastern Europe, we're, we're kind of down the line. We're, we're, we're waiting for America to re regain a little bit of strength because in terms of kind of, of geopolitics, a, a weak America is very bad for, for countries in this, in this area. Because, you know, NATO is, is the, the linchpin of everything that's going on here. And there's always kind of the, the looming threat of other powers. So, you know, that uh, America regaining a bit of strength, a bit of confidence in itself is something that, you know, I would recommend <laughs> if possible. So whoever has got listening yeah. to this has a little bit of power. <laughs> well, it, it, would, it would also require a rethinking of our European relationship and alliance. And I think this form of a, of a, of a newly constituted conservatism would have a lot more interest in the kinds of things that are happening in some Eastern European countries and have a lot more hesitation about the trajectory and direction of Western Europe, which seems to me to be moving toward a dead end. I mean, literally in terms of demographics, uh, but also politically, uh, the, the kind of the EU project, it seems to me, uh, is, you know, it seems you know, fundamentally disinterested in questions of geopolitical self-defense. Um, it has this kind of fan, you know, fantastical understanding of its relationship, uh, for example, with China or the United States. Uh, and uh, um, I, think, um, I think the post-communist countries have a much more realistic sense, or should I say the post-Soviet countries have a much more realistic sense of, what, of what's involved in maintaining a civilization. They're much more in tune and grounded in what it is to maintain a civilization, where the Western European countries whether it's because of sort of advanced sclerotic liberalism or just a complete loss of confidence following you know, World War II and the American umbrella, 
have just lost the thread as far as that's involved. So I, I would hope that a, a newly constituted, differently constituted party, whatever we call it, could be called Republican, it could be called Democrat, I don't care, uh, would actually begin to rethink some of its relationship, broadly speaking, to Europe and find a lot more resonance and I think resources in some of the Eastern European countries. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I thought you might. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I just want to, to ask you one one last question before I let you go, because um, we're, we're heading up on time. Um, this is a question of the show. I try to ask this to, to every person coming on. Um, is there a, a, a book, a thinker, a, um, a movement uh, that is subversive or is that that could be interesting to, to people listening to this uh, that they might not know about um, that you would recommend that was either influential for you or, or some, someone that you know, deserves a little bit of, of, of credit uh, and that people don't know about? Well, I think I've already mentioned two. Uh, I mentioned the name of Bertrand de Juvenel, mm -hmm. who may, probably is not known to many people who uh, who listen to your podcast and not known to many academics at all, uh, but about whom I'd like to see a, a bit of a revival. Um, and then I mentioned someone whose name has been a lot more in the news of late, um, but I, I'd like to at least claim that I, I, I was following him uh, long before everyone else caught up, which is Christopher Lash. Uh, and Christopher Lash's essay, uh, which I mentioned, The Revolt of the Elites, I think is a must read for our time because it really describes, um, it describes the development and trajectory of our leadership or the meritocratic class. Uh, it's, it's um, uh, in some ways, it's deep antipathy to the, to the people that it nominally is supposed to guide and lead. Uh, and it also talks, that essay talks in interesting ways about the kind of the virtues you would expect to find among the, the sort of the masses, the ordinary people. And what strikes me on rereading that, uh, now written, uh, was written and published in 1995, uh, what strikes me now is that is how much those virtues that Lash extolled among the sort of working classes have been really weakened uh, and really atrophied in the intervening you know, almost 30 years. Uh, that, that I think is a, is a reflection of what I was talking about earlier of the ways that this divide between the elite and the working classes is really going to, is, is really going to have a, a terribly bad effect on the working classes and also on the elite classes. Uh, to the to the point in which they will now constitute a kind of political destabilizing force uh, in in the nation. So I, I really think that his essay was prophetic, but also uh, didn't perhaps count enough the likely uh, corruption uh, and decline of the status and state of the working class, where he had pinned a lot of hopes. His his worldview was you know in, in its own way. If you're familiar with the book 1984. Uh, or the thinking of George Orwell, Orwell would often say, you know, look to the proles, look to the proletariat, right? That's a kind of, that's a refrain in the book 1984, look to the proles uh, for a kind of resurgence of, um, of virtue in our society. But I think it's a really an open question now, uh, whether, whether, you know, we're likely to see a resurgence of virtue or simply kind of a, an ongoing, increasingly hostile class war uh, without the development of a better elite 
that could um, counter both the current elite and worrying trends among the people. So Christopher's La Christopher Lash's writings, but especially his, la his late works, The Revolt of the Elites, as well as his very large, very thick tome in which my computer is actually sitting right now, uh, The True and Only Heaven, uh, which is a study of a kind of alternative tradition in the American tradition of a kind of anti-progressive uh, um, line of thinking. Uh, that's a very, uh, very uh, uh, thick and ponderous book. It's large enough to hold up my computer, but also uh, a very filled with genuine and deep insights that really are worth revisiting. So those will be the two authors I'll plug here today. Extraordinary. It's very interesting because I actually published a um, kind of a, a post-liberal reading list right before our, our podcast and I included Lash and I also included the, the culture of narcissism, I think is uh, is important. And also uh, why liberalism failed, very importantly, everyone should buy it, everyone should read it because it is, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a founding document for our future, I hope, because, you know, it's, it's pointing in the right direction. Um, and also the, the next book, the one with, with all the prescriptions. <laughs> It's it's uh, it's it's getting there. Uh, I have a it, the tentative title uh, right now is uh, after liberalism, uh, but uh, we'll have to hammer that out with uh, with my publisher. But uh, that's the I think it's, it's a very good. It, uh, it it kind of reminds me of of after virtue, another book on that. Uh. It's a little bit of a little bit of an homage to uh, my colleague uh, Alistair McIntyre. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us, Patrick. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really it was a pleasure to meet you finally after admiring your tweets and, and your and your essays. So thanks for having thank me. Thank you so much. That that means a lot. If you like what you're hearing, wanna see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just wanna support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you.